0: Hi, welcome to our podcast. My name is Sadaf. And I'm Rosemine. We are two women navigating life today, comparing it to when we grew up. Landlines,
1: Walkmans, and VCRs versus smartphones, apps, and social media. All we can say is it's too much. It is too much.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of It's Too Much. On today's episode, we will be discussing a few sensitive topics. Specifically, we will be talking about mental illness, uh, depression and anxiety, and how it is affecting everyone in the world at this time because of recent events that are happening and being quarantined. And we brought in an expert today to kind of guide us through this and answer some questions that we have that, you know, we may not necessarily be able to answer ourselves. So um, I'll throw it over to Rosmeen to introduce our expert for us. So today
1: we have with us Dr. Imran S. Khwaja, he's a psychiatrist and a sleep medicine physician, and he is board certified in both psychiatry and sleep medicine. Um, he learned psychotherapy from the new york medical college psychoanalytic school during his residency training he completed his fellowship in sleep medicine at the mayo clinic and is currently clinical professor of psychiatry at university of oklahoma dr kwaja is the ceo of md true care psychiatry which is a private practice group in psychiatry sleep medicine and interchronology he has recently published an amazon international bestseller the Power of Your Dream Self-Image with his brother, Rizwan. Welcome, Dr. Khwaja.
2: Thank Welcome. you so much for having me here. Yep.
1: How are you doing today?
2: Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you.
1: Good. So, yeah, like uh, Salaf said in our intro, it's a very sensitive topic, and we wanted to see we already know that what's going on with the you know family members or with friends or whatever, but we wanted to kind of bring, um, bring you in and see what kind of things you are seeing and also kind of just define for us what is depression and anxiety, and if if there is a difference between the two, uh, what are the degrees?
2: Sure. Now, depression and anxiety, they they go hand-in-hand. I mean, they are two different disorders or groups of disorders. If you look at uh, depression, they are more considered as depressive disorder, and anxiety disorders are anxiety disorders. Now, as I said, both of them go hand-in-hand. If you look at uh, what's going on currently in the world, everybody's worried about things. Everybody's stressed out. So if you define depression according to the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5, which is kind of the Bible of uh, psychiatry, is it defines depression as an episode of two weeks or more where a person goes through some symptoms, signs and symptoms, which includes things like sadness, feeling like crying, Having anhedonia, which means losing interest in things, trouble with sleep, appetite, thoughts of suicide, losing interest in things. Now, these are some constellation of symptoms which can occur and it is bad enough that it affects a person's functioning. So that is a major depressive episode. Now, in general, when we look at uh, patients who go through depression, usually they go through some significant stresses. Now, in, in, in depression, loss is a main theme and people lose something like a loved one or something significant of anything which they value, they tend to have depressive symptoms. As, as in contrast uh, to anxiety, anxiety is a bit different. Anxiety is, if you think of separation, when you think of separation, anxiety is more uh, like thinking thinking about separating from somebody, like separation anxiety. But anxiety symptoms are if you Think of them, uh, they are mainly of three different types. Obviously, as the name suggests, anxiety means a person is having a lot of anxiousness or nervousness. But if you look at broadly, and I'm not going to go into the different disorders, you can think of them as three different types. One is where people are chronically worried about things. So there are types of anxiety disorders, for example, generalized anxiety disorder, where people are worried about things all the time. They cannot shut their mind. So they're worried about either uh, losing something, they're worried about anything which is bothering them, their job, their kids. This is more generalized form of anxiety. The other form of anxiety is where people get panic attacks. A panic attack is a sudden onset of extreme anxiety with some physical symptoms. For example, in a panic attack, a person might feel that he or she is dying or can't breathe or having chest pain. So it's like a sudden onset of anxiety which peaks within a few minutes and it could be because of some sort of a stressor or sometimes it could occur without any particular stressor. So now we've talked about the generalized form of anxiety, we've talked about the panic type of anxiety. The third form of anxiety one could consider as social anxiety which means that a person is anxious around people. I mean they may not get panic attack but they're extremely anxious around people difficulty public speaking or meeting new people in public. So it could be more in social anxiety. Now, this is an oversimplification of anxiety disorders. However, in most cases, depression and anxiety go hand in hand. And that's where we treat them both simultaneously.
1: Okay. One thing I wanted to kind of um, clear is that you said that depression, um, it, it's a depressive disorder or dep- depressive episode where you know, they, sent, they feel a sense of loss or something, right? So is mm-hmm. it fair to say that depression is, is related to something in the past that has happened and anxiety is more of not knowing what the future is going to be
2: like? No, so that That's one way to, that's definitely a way to think of it because depression is something from the past, like it includes things like guilt or something bad happened. So if you look at psychodynamically, you know, when uh, This is usually depression is about guilt, about the past, whereas anxiety is about the future, what's going to happen in the future. But in in terms of DSM-5 criteria, I mean, they don't talk about that, like past versus future. But we know that uh, Mm -hmm. when they're anxious, they're thinking about the future. That's why we encourage people to live in the present. You know, there's no point of living in the past where you have regret or guilt. All you want to do is learn from the past and move on to the future, but live in the present or worrying about the future, what's going to happen? The future is not even here. So people are worrying. So I think that's a good way to think about it is that depression is about the past versus uh, anxieties about the future.
0: And that's really good information to have, because I'm sure there were a lot of people that didn't know that. Um, So it's always good to get that differentiation. And what I wanted to know is, um, and this is just something that I know that I have been struggling with. So I just wanted to know if maybe you've seen um, an increase. But since all of this quarantine, and, um, you know, people staying home, since all of this started, have you had patients or have you had, you know, just in general seen that people are more anxious because they are more worried about what's going on? Or is it basically the same? And, you know, there's not really an increase?
2: No, absolutely. I mean, you're right. There's been an exponential increase in anxiety, depression, and a lot of other mental health psychiatric problems. I mean, just imagine, I mean, people, when you think about anxiety, it's about what's going to happen in the future. A lot of people don't know what's going to happen. A lot of people have worries about getting ill. I mean, they have loved ones who are at uh, risk of getting seriously ill. So a lot of people are coming into my private practice. I mean, it's been busy, but it's gotten even more busy. When the COVID hit uh, the first week, I mean, it obviously the business went down, the patients weren't coming. But now with the telepsych, tele- we're seeing patients online. There's a huge number of patients showing up. Uh, most of them are struggling with anxiety. A lot of them have feelings of depression. For example, I mean, people who are not sure whether they're going to lose their job or not. People who have lost their job are struggling financially. So their worries about the future, they are experiencing more panic attacks. Just to give you an example, I mean, people who have seen like maybe uh, doing fairly well every three, four, five months, they're coming back, they're resurfacing, resurf- uh, and they're uh, needing more medications and treatment. So there's definitely a huge increase in, uh, in, in, the, so in more anxiety and depressive patients showing up for, the, for getting some help. Uh, there was an article, in, and I think BBC, which talked about there's going to be a tsunami of uh, mental health once, uh, and even right now, once this, this is over, because, I mean, everybody is stuck at home and they are feeling uh, that they are not in control of their lives. That definitely makes a huge impact. Now, what I'm coaching my patients and when I'm teaching them is that, uh, just to say that in my practice, for example, a uh, majority of patients, when they are coming in to see me uh, because they are, they are stuck at home, they can't go out, they feel that they are out of control. So they are feeling more anxious, more worried. But there is about 15-20% of my patients who are actually doing much better. And and I, because of the way they are thinking about things, the way they are reframing. So the people who are doing well, what we find is that their way of thinking is different. They think of it, okay, this is a time for them to reflect on things. This is a time for them to relax, to take rest or to get back into shape or to exercise more or to get connected with their loved ones. Because now... They have time. They don't have to be on the road traveling. So that time they can use for exercise. That time they can use for walks. It's it's just thinking about what what meaning you're going to give to that event. So people who are thinking we are stuck, we can't do anything, we can't go out, they're going to feel bad versus the ones who feel that, well, this is just an opportunity. We still have to stay safe. We have to keep our social distancing and take care of ourselves and take care of our businesses. But on the same token, we do have a lot more extra time. I mean, we have more uh, time to connect with their family to read books to learn a skill to go for walks to get into better shape to have a better diet so it depends so but you're right i mean by and large people are struggling
0: and what would you say uh especially with mental health issues in our south asian community it's such a taboo so there are children who have come home from college and now they've been at home with their parents you know for three or four or five months whatever it is mm-hmm. and you know what? What would you say to, you know, them to be able to speak to their parents or for their parents um, to be able to get them help if they need it? Because a lot of times, you know, as a young Desi kid, you cannot go to your parents because they don't understand. They don't understand what mental health is or, you know, why you would need help. So what would you say to that?
2: you know so that's that's a, and i see it in my private practice as well i have a lot of patients who are from desi background from india and from pakistan there's a huge cultural divide if you think of people who are born and raised here uh, i mean they have trouble because they're basically living in two different cultures when they are outside the household i mean they they are they have a different persona they they act differently when they come in it's totally different now, the parents, uh, they come from different background, if they're from Pakistan or India, I mean, they're raised in a certain way, the things were different back then, even right now back home. So they have certain values they go by. I mean, um, so sometimes it's very difficult for a teenager to talk about their mental health issues with their parents. Now, one of the things is, and there's no clear-cut answer to that, um, mm-hmm. Now, there has to be some flexibility flexibility which should be cultivated within the parents as well. Now, what I teach and coach my patients who are teenagers or young adults, that they're going to have to learn the skill of uh, having crucial conversations, meaning that uh, they're going to be able to uh, comfortably or make things comfortable, psychologically safe to discuss certain things with their parents. Similarly, the parents have to do the same thing. I can give you examples, of, of course, I can't mention names or anything like that. There are patients in my practice who mm-hmm. parents are very strict, extremely strict in uh, somebody who's maybe in their early 20s. or parents are still treating them like as they are 14, 13 year old. So that becomes a problem. And, and one of the techniques uh, which I've learned over the years, it's called a PAC model from transactional analysis. It's uh, uh, Eric Burney and some of the authors wrote about it. There's a famous book back in the 60s and 70s, I'm okay and you're okay. It's about transactional analysis. And that is very helpful when I teach it to young adults, teenagers, how to manage that. So, for example, the Pat model or the transactional analysis says that PAC means P-A-C. It stands for uh, parent, adult, and child. Now, in each one of us, there is a parent. In each one of us, there is an adult and there is a child. When a parent is talking to their son or their daughter and they're not happy, they're telling them, you got to do this, you got to do this. That's their parent talking to them and that induces the child in the teenager. So the teenager becomes like a child because that's the transaction between the two, parent and the child. The parent is talking to the child and the child is talking to the parent as a parent. So what is a child feeling? The child feels helpless because it's a child. It's a mentality. The emotional state is of a child. So encourage them to think of that model and try to switch that state of mind from being a child to an adult. Because what does a child do? A child gets frustrated, yells and scream, and have a tantrum or feels helpless. So sometimes teenagers feel like that. Now, if we teach them how to become an adult, you know, to be able to manage their emotions and talk to their parents like an adult, which means that they're not going to lose their temper. They're not going to throw a tantrum. They're not going to run away. They're going to engage their parent and and get to a point where they can have crucial conversations with them so that the parent moves away from being a parent and becomes an adult and talk to their children like from adult and adult perspective. Rather than a parent versus child, it's going to be an adult and adult conversation. Mm-hmm. which makes things so much easier. But it needs practice. It needs some insight. It needs some skills which a person needs to develop because they're not used to it. Whenever a parent calls somebody's name, suddenly a person or the teenager goes into that state of mind where they are a child. Mm-hmm. So so develop, encouraging them to be able to have conversations like an adult and bringing their parents' adult in front of them rather than the parent. Does it make sense?
0: Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Just
1: to kind of extend it, what, what you were just saying, so you also provide like group therapy with parents and children together or, or teenagers together where they do have that opportunity to talk to each other because that's probably what the, the divide is, that's probably what the disconnect is. That you know, parents and kids, you know, they don't talk to each other often. And of course, with such stigma around mental illness it's kind of all brushed under a rug, right? So do you think we need to have more conversations like this in our community?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, just a few months ago before the COVID hit, we had a seminar at our uh, Islamic center about mental health awareness, and we invited maybe six or seven psychiatrists. It was a panel discussion. So I think more and more programs like this and discussions uh, where people are openly talking about it is going to be a good thing. Now, in mental health, of course, there's a taboo, but it is getting better. You know, a lot of patients have ADHD. A lot of patients have anxiety. People are successful, extremely successful, um, who are writers and authors who have, uh, who take medications for anxiety, for example, and they're pretty open about it. And part of the reason they're open about it is because, I mean, they want the taboo to go down. Now, think of it, if you if you compare uh, physical health, medical health with, with mental health, you know, I mean, uh, we are not there yet, but we take a lot of medications, treatments, and our, our age, we are able to live up to 90 years, even though people may have heart attack at the age of 50, or they may have um, any coronary artery disease or other problems of blood pressure. They take medications if longer. The quality of life is better. Their blood sugars on insulin are better, they, even though they're diabetic. Similarly, I mean, mental health is not that far. Psychiatrically, if patients are, people are having trouble, there are treatments which are available to help them sort of optimize their emotional health, their psychiatric health. So there's no need uh, for the taboo because everybody goes through emotional ups and downs. Uh, people can have problems with depression, anxiety. I mean, people like uh, presidents like Abraham Lincoln had depression or he was actually thought to have bipolar disorder. So it's just the taboo has to go down. In in, uh, in, in a Desi culture, I think it's still there because it's considered as a big failure if one or anybody develops depression or anxiety. But the reality is, they are, they, it's very common. People deal with it. They, if they get treatment, they can do much better.
1: So speaking of treatment, what kind of treatments are we talking about? Um, is it just medication? Is there <laughs> therapy? Is there um, some um, mechanics that are used? Like, can you elaborate So that? it
2: depends. You know, if, you, if you're just talking about anxiety and depression, uh, then let's take depression, for example. I mean, obviously, there are medication management, of course. But medication is just part of the treatment. Uh, it's just a par- part of the treatment. When I'm seeing a patient, and I mean, I don't just want to uh, focus on just giving patients medications and see, okay, let's see if it works or not. I'm working with a patient where uh, I'm in- in involving the families and I'm understanding what are their patterns of behaviors, the patterns of thinking which have led to this. Obviously, there is genetic component to depression as well. So my typical spiel to a patient is that medication is going to be just part of your treatment. It's not going to be a full panacea where it's gonna take care of everything. So what what the medication can do is it can change the state of mind. So somebody who's depressed, extremely depressed, for whatever reason, they're usually they're, they're thinking, their thinking is negative, their body language is different, the emotional state is down, they they're feeling negative, their thoughts are negative, their moods are low. So if you think of uh, depression, think of you know, if you look at look at the cognitive behavioral. Uh, from that point of view, think of how depression or anxiety affects us. So, so think of thoughts, moods, and behaviors. So, just think of these three things: thoughts, moods, and behaviors. They are interlinked. Now, if somebody is depressed, their thoughts are more negative. They are having negative thoughts. They're self-defeating thoughts. Their belief system is negative. What kind of mood they are in? They are in a negative mood. They feel sad. They feel hopeless. They feel like crying. What kind of behavior do they have? Behavior is obviously, are they going to be running around happy? Or they're going to be sad. They're going to be isolated. So all these three aspects, thoughts, behaviors, and uh, moods are interrelated. When we give medications, it may help with the mood to some extent. The mood gets better. The thoughts get better, but the thoughts need some psychotherapy and some cognitive work, some different psychodynamic type of work, which will change the way they think. But then we also emphasize the behavioral aspect. We, so instead of staying at home, we encourage them to exercise, to go out. So we are trying to help with all these three different aspects. But the medication is effective, affecting the mood. Obviously, it does affect the energy, but we have to change the pattern. If somebody is in a habit of having negative thinking, having negative interactions, negative behaviors, we give them the medication, but they don't change the way they act, the way they think. Sooner or later, they're going to find themselves back into depression.
0: Along that same vein, then I have a question about um, what are some signs that, so as a family, if, you know, we're all together right now, we're all at home, no one's really going out much still, um, and, you know, there's some, you know, high functioning people with depression, how, what are some signs, what are some symptoms so that family members and friends can be on the lookout for each other um, to help each other if they do notice anything? Sure.
2: So that's a good question. So a couple of things. Number one is if somebody's behavior is changed from their previous pattern. So for example, somebody is very uh, interactive with the family and suddenly you notice that the person is not interactive much. They're staying most of their time in their room. They're not coming out. And also they're not having much fun. They're not having any interest in things which they like to do. So if somebody used to play certain sports or be interested in certain activities, and now they're not enjoying it anymore. There's no fun. There's no fun in any activity, the things which they used to uh, like before. That's what we call as anhedonia. So feeling sad, feel like crying, thoughts of suicide, feeling isolated, not doing things which they like to do before. These kind of changes in the in, in somebody's behavior pattern could be a red flag. Uh, so that that has to be taken seriously, and I think if if you if any of the family members is going through that, it's good to kind of ask them, not to push them, but under, try to understand what's going on. I mean, uh, give them some space, but also to uh, make sure that they understand nobody's going to judge them if if they're having any problem. Now, if you think of uh, depression, if, if teenagers, for example, or. Young family members, you have to understand there could be things going on in their personal life at school, for example. I mean, uh, they may be having issues with friendships. So one has to kind of explore that, but not to push them too much. That would kind of make them even more guarded.
1: I guess one last question that we had. So let's say, what is the first step of, of getting help? If you do identify, or if the family member does identify that there is something wrong and, and somebody needs help, so what is the path that they should take?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Obviously, it depends. It depends on, on the uh, cultural norms of that household. Um, I mean, sometimes being a psychiatrist could be something where people don't want to go directly to see a psychiatrist. I mean, they may want to go and see their primary care doctor, even though nowadays things have changed where uh, people are just approaching psychiatric clinics and ask, asking for an appointment to get a psychiatric evaluation. And uh, that would be the first step. However, If somebody is reluctant, I think uh, uh, if if a person himself or herself is dealing with that, I would would strongly urge them to see a psychiatrist for a consultation. It doesn't mean that you're going to see a psychiatrist wherever, just get a consultation. Um, If a person is not interested in medications at all, they want to see a therapist, the key thing is to make sure that you see a therapist who's got good credentials. Because when you're going to see a psychiatrist, you know that a person is an MD and have a full training of psychiatric residency. But when you're going to see a counselor, there's no clear cut uh, understanding. I mean, you could there's no clear definition, at least from the people's point of view. I mean, they may not know what, what, what does a psychologist mean, if this person is a psychologist versus a, versus a social work therapist versus just a counselor. So you want to understand what that person's background is. Uh, again, I'm not saying that somebody who's trained in psychotherapy and a social worker is not good enough, but I think it'd be good to make sure that you understand that th- this person has proper credentials, either a PhD in psychology or a psych D. Uh, that would be a better start. Uh, I'm not saying that there are other therapists like master's level are not good, but I think uh, if you see somebody who is a PhD, you could get a good diagnostic impression uh, to get go, uh, started with.
0: Well, that's great.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Kaja. This has been really great information. I know our listeners are going to really benefit from this, and I know that there needs to be more dialogue about this. There sure. There needs to be more um, talk about this. So um, we may do another uh, another episode, um, and we may Absolutely. zero in on on one of one or two symptoms or or something like that, and then and maybe invite you back.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. you know. I mean, one of the things which we didn't touch more uh, on it is, is sleep problems. Since I, I'm, I'm also a sleep physician and I'm passionate about uh, the comorbidity between sleep and psychiatric disorders. I mean, sleep is extremely important. Like when we look at psychiatric disorders, sometimes sleep is one of the most uh, first things which is affected. Either a person is not able to fall asleep or having insomnia or I mean, they're sleeping a lot. Now, one of the things which I've, uh, I've been... Uh, saying is that sometimes if there's a taboo about treating uh, getting mental health, uh, it is easier to people, for the people to seek help for sleep. You know, so, so they come to me for sleep issues like insomnia or snoring, but then as they're there, they get to know me. Then they talk about that they're dealing with anxiety or depression and things like that. So it, it's an easy segue where somebody like family members, if somebody feels that they have some psychiatric problems going on, but there's some sleep issues as well, one could focus on the sleep issues because treating sleep issues ultimately would lead to helping them with their uh, mental health issues too. Again, we, we can always t- just talk about insomnia, sleep disorders, because in teenagers, as I said, uh, it's teenagers are diagnosed, misdiagnosed with having insomnia. A lot of times they don't have insomnia. They have what we call as delayed sleep phase syndrome, which means in layman's language, it's like a night owl syndrome. When... Uh, teenagers get to be uh, like 15, 16, their brains become night owls. Biologically, they become night owls. So obviously, they are, they're going to have difficulty falling asleep. So, I mean, if they have to go to school at 6 in the morning, their natural sleep time becomes 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. Now, if they're going to try to go to sleep at 10 a.m., a p.m., they're not going to be able to fall asleep. And then finally, when they fall asleep around 2 a.m., you wake them up at 6 a.m. to go to school. So they are extremely tired. It's just like if if you wake up at seven and somebody wakes you up at three in the morning and push you to go to work, you know, so that's going to be a major, major problem. So that's what our, most teenagers are dealing with. So much so that the problem is so bad that in Minnesota and in California, they are changing high school times. They're delaying high school times because it's a biological problem, not I mean, obviously the uh, internet and the iPhones and the uh, video games haven't helped because of the light but it still mm-hmm. is a biological problem.
1: That's very interesting you said that because I think when we were in high school our school started like at 7 seven fifteen or something in the morning. Yeah. Uh-huh. I know that you know high school starts much later and I yeah. think that's probably what played a, a role in it that the not fall asleep at mm-hmm. 10 p.m. You cannot make them go to sleep at 10 p.m. and wake them up at six, you know? Sure, sure. So like, yeah, oh my god, that's that's completely,
2: um, yeah, I, it makes it all, it makes a lot
1: of sense now. Yeah, yeah. I was all through my high school.
2: <laughs> no, the, the thing is, I mean, uh, uh, it's it's not science, it's not like it's not a, a anecdote, you know? I mean, the, it's it's been proven that teenagers become night owls, I um, mean, so we have to adjust their school times accordingly. There's studies now showing that. If you change school times, it improves their alertness level. It reduces motor vehicle accidents. It also helps with depression and anxiety. The rates of ADHD, for example, are so high. But in in my practice, when I see teenagers, one of the things I do is I want to make sure that they're getting about eight to nine hours of sleep. And if they have delayed sleep phase, you treat that because there are ways we can treat it. And uh, their sleep becomes better. Their focusing issues get better. Because just imagine... I mean, a teenager who can't fall asleep till 2 a.m., you wake them up at 6 a.m. and send them to school. I mean, that's 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning when they're in a class. That's their time to be in REM sleep because that's their natural sleep cycle is at that time. So it's like us going to work at 4 a.m. and trying to do our best. I mean, we're not going to follow things. We're going to fall behind. So same thing happens to teenagers. I mean, they, they can't Function, they can't understand what's going on. I mean, their math scores are poor because it's the time for them to sleep during that time, eight o'clock or nine o'clock, and they're trying to attend classes. And then they feel frustrated, they fall behind. Obviously, that makes them more stressed out and certainly contribute to depression.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Praja. This was uh, very insightful. Uh, We learned a lot, of course, and I know that our audience is definitely going to benefit from from this. And hopefully, you know, we'll. uh, We'll be able to bridge that gap that, you know, our South Asian community has between parents and kids, you know, and they will talk more and will um, talk about this issue more and more. So there's more of an understanding and awareness with
2: this. Good. Uh, absolutely. I think that's very much needed. And uh, thank you both for doing this. I really appreciate that.
0: All right. Thank you. And that's a wrap on another episode of It's Too Much. Thank you all so much for listening.
1: Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify, and be sure to like our Facebook page.